What is worth living for? And what work is worth doing at a time when it feels like everything is collapsing around us? What can eco-villages and community offer in today's crumbling society? These are some of the challenging questions that writer and speaker Dugald Hine posed in his opening speech on day three of this summer's European Eco-Village Gathering, which is what we're sharing with you today in this look back at the event. This is recorded live from the gathering, with sound and musical accompaniment by sound artists Imaginal, who join us every year to bring an extra layer of life to speeches and workshops. Dougald is co-founder of, among many other things, the Dark Mountain Project, an initiative dedicated to telling new stories about the social and ecological crises we're facing. His work wrestles creatively and poetically with the dark, rich, vital questions of what it means to be alive in a world that is collapsing. His speech, which opened a day focused on the theme of acceptance, didn't offer easy answers or comfort, but it does offer a suggestion of a place in the world to come for all those living in community or those who are seeking it. These, he says, will be among the places that, through daring to collaborate beyond the old structures that may collapse, they may be crucial, as he puts it, to reseeding the social landscape when crises hit and as we go through the uncomfortable, inevitable death of the old and birth of something new. Eco-villages might be one of the places where we wind where we find solace in something bigger than ourselves, beyond the logic of state and market. And the gathering brought together wonderful examples of this in action. The solidarity between communities within Ukraine and beyond, as eco-villages opened their doors and homes to refugees as soon as the war struck, and continue to do so. You can hear more about this in the latest episode of the podcast. How eco-villages supported one another during the pandemic. We also showcased more practical ways of how communities are preparing for challenges to come, from regenerative food growing practices to crafts for, for local economies and low-tech solutions for energy and transport. Ultimately, the gathering is a place for people to come together to wrestle with the most challenging questions of our time and find positive, hopeful solutions in community with one another. And Dougald's speech gave hundreds of attendees rich inspiration to do just that. We'll leave you now with Dougald's full speech. I really can't re- recommend it enough for its masterful storytelling and profound food for thought. I hope you enjoy it. In Hindu cosmology, we live in the Kali Yuga, the fourth age of this world cycle, part of a vast nest of cycles within cycles stretching thousands of millions of years. The scientific revelations of deep time and the evolution of species landed in a European culture whose best minds had taken the mythopoetic mystery of the Hebrew Bible and stretched it and flattened it into a timeline according to which God had created the world in 4004 BC on the evening of 22nd October. This literal mindedness was part of what made possible the discoveries of natural science. But it also left the culture in which those discoveries were made painfully ill-equipped 
to handle the implications of the vastness, the deep age of the world, of many worlds, which we are born into. My friend, the Swedish philosopher Johan Radin, says seven generations on, Western culture is still running away from what was discovered, the secrets that were found in the rocks of how much older the world is than creatures like us. How much smaller our part is within the whole living story than we might have been telling ourselves around here at the moment in our cultural history when those scientific discoveries were made. So a question that I've spent a lot of time with is how we name the world that is ending now. How we find ways of talking about living in a time of endings. And today, I want to speak with you about what it means to look for vision in a time of endings. Vision means seeing. What is it that it becomes possible to see precisely because we're living through the end of the world as we've known it. That old word, apocalypse, doesn't actually mean the end of the world. It means an uncovering, an unveiling, hidden things being brought into view. So what becomes possible to see when we look for a vision worth holding in a time of endings. How do we find the kind of tasks that make sense in such a time? And how do we find our bearings if we take seriously what science can tell us about the depth of the mess the world is in? the climate crisis around and ahead of us, but also all of the other aspects of systemic crisis that are part of what it means to be alive just now. How do we find our bearings without, without being overwhelmed, without feeling paralyzed? And I realize as I start to speak about this that The ending, the endings that are part of what it means to be living just now don't come in the form of a single Hollywood event. You know, in the early days of the pandemic, there was a meme on social media where people were taking images from films like Mad Max or The Road and they put that on one side and they'd say, how you expected the apocalypse to be. And then there would be a photo of supermarket shelves with no toilet paper left on them. <laughs> <laughs> or someone sat at home doing their job working in their pyjamas. And they'd be like, 
how the apocalypse turned out. As far as the internet was concerned, this was a bit of an underwhelming apocalypse. But actually, a lot of things have been brought into view over the last two or three years and over the longer process that we've been living through. But for some of us, the end of the world as we know it has already happened. It can happen very quickly. For others, it's creeping slowly into people's lives. You may find that it becomes possible to have conversations with people who wouldn't come to an event like this, who've never been to an eco-village, but who have a sense that something has gone badly wrong, that the ways we're living in our societies are not working for anybody, really, anymore. That those conversations are maybe a bit easier than they were five or 10 or 15 years ago. And that's also part of what it is like to live in a time of endings, is the, the slow spread of doubt and questioning and fear and lots of other things that you know, don't necessarily take good forms, but that if we're listening hard to them, we can find the truth within and the path onwards from in lots of places that haven't been touched by the kind of conversations that we're having, kind of space we're sharing and creating together over these few days. But I guess the place I wanted to um, to bring this together at the start of this talk is with the thought that all of us are descendants of people who lived through the endings of worlds. Worlds end sooner or later. Many worlds have ended in the making of this world. When I ask myself which world is ending now, one of the most powerful answers that I've come across comes from a pair of anthropologists, Mario Blazer and Marisol de la Cadena. And they write about this word, the Anthropocene, that is a a scientific term for naming the geological age that is brought about by the consequences of human activity on a whole planet. And they say, you know, this buzz about the Anthropocene, these books and papers and conferences and exhibitions taking place in big cities in Europe and North America and so on. From elsewhere, it looks a lot like the world of the powerful discovering that its world too could end. The world of the powerful that went around the world, ending so many other people's worlds in the name of progress and liberal values and development and growth and whichever combination of words it has been. Suddenly, late in the day, late in the story, being overtaken by a sense of vulnerability that this world too could end. So to get all of this into perspective, I want to take you back. I want to take you back about 12,000 years 
because there were people living in villages in places that would be marked on our maps today as Palestine, Israel, Lebanon, parts of Syria. We don't know what those people called themselves. We call them the Natufians because the first archaeological discoveries that led us to understand about this ancient village way of life were made in the Wadi and Natuf, a rocky valley outside of Ramallah. And from what we know, they may well have been the first humans to live in settled year-round villages. This was long before farming, it was long before writing, but some of those villages were inhabited for 1,500 years, 50 generations. And this was possible because they were living in a landscape of abundance. When wild grains were growing beneath nut trees and animals running between them, you know, if there ever was a Garden of Eden, the landscape that the Natufians inhabited during those 15 centuries is a good candidate for it. And all of this was going on towards the end of what we call the last ice age. So if you go back 22,000 years or so, you had the depths of the ice age and there would be two miles of ice above where we're sitting here. And slowly, slowly, the world had been warming. And it was under those conditions that in this part of the Middle East, these villagers found this settled way of life. But the changes that were going on were not smooth or predictable. A change was coming to the Tufian way of life. The world of those villages was coming to an end. Because far away across the Atlantic, the melting ice had built up into a vast lake. The last remnants of which are what we now call the Great Lakes on the border between Canada and the United States. And this meltwater lake built up until it burst. And when it burst, the water flooded into the Atlantic. A rush of cold water so big, it could change an ocean. It switched off the currents that carried heat then, as they do now, from the Gulf of Mexico to the west of Europe. And so for the next 1,200 years, this part of the planet was plunged back to the depths of the iciest stage of the Ice Age. 1,200 year long winter. And the Tufians didn't know any of this about the Atlantic, the Meltwater Lake, the ocean currents. But what they knew was that the seasons were no longer working the way they used to. The landscape was changing. The rains didn't come when they had come before. And within quite a short time, they had to abandon their villages. So far as we can tell, they went back out onto the land 
as wandering nomads, returning to the ruins of their ancestors' homes to rebury the bones of the dead among the stones. There are three things that haunt me about this story. The first one is the sheer length of time involved. 1,500 years, 50 generations. In a culture without writing, any memory of a way of life before those villages must have belonged to the myth world, culture heroes, gods. The possibility that their way of life could end, that those villages could, have, could be abandoned. Just imagine how unthinkable that must have seemed after 50 generations. And yet it happened. The second thing that haunts me about this story is that there's no morality in it. The climate change that brought the Natufian way of life to an end was not the consequence of the way they had been living. It was just a change in the weather, part of what it's like to inhabit a planet like the one that we live on. And I think sometimes we burden ourselves so heavily with the particular stories of the climate change that is around and ahead of us and the responsibility for it, that we lose sight of this sense that this is and has always been part of what it is like to inhabit this living earth. That doesn't make it easier, it doesn't change the, the fact that there are consequences attached to the ways that people have been living around here lately, and that those consequences which were falling on other people elsewhere all along are now coming home to countries like Denmark, Sweden, where I live, England, where I grew up. But I think it's helpful to be reminded of that. And the third thing that haunts me comes from the book where I first learned about the Natufians. It's a book by Stephen Mithen, a British archaeologist. It's called After the Ice, A Global Human History, 20,000 to 5,000 BC. And he does an amazing job of drawing together what academic archaeologists and other specialists can tell us about the ways in which people were living in different times and places all over the world within that journey from the depths of the last ice age to around the, the early beginnings of agriculture. And what he also does in between the passages where he's presenting the academic research is to send a time traveller to visit these people living in different times and places and walk unseen through their communities and sit around their campfires and just try to imagine what it was like to be human in all of these different places. And he goes twice to the Natufians, once during the, the prosperous village years of abundance and then once hundreds and hundreds of years later to their descendants who are now living out on the land, living shorter and harsher lives than their ancestors 
returning periodically to the ruined villages for these ceremonies of reburial of the bones. And he has this time traveler follow a little band who are arriving for one of these gatherings and they spend a few days in the ruined village and it's a time of storytelling and gathering and a respite from the harshness of their current way of life. And yet there's this moment when they're going back, he's following this band back out onto the land and he says, and they are, they're glad to be going back to their way of life, which is the only way of life they have known and the way of life that they love. And I think it's helpful to be reminded of that as well, because sometimes some of us who speak about how deep the trouble we're in is when it comes to things like climate change, I hear people speak as if it's all going to be over soon. And when Paul Kingsnorth and I wrote the Dark Mountain Manifesto, in the closing lines of it, we made a claim that I've kept coming back to. We said, the end of the world as we know it is not the end of the world full stop. The end of the world as we know it is not the end of the world full stop. There's no great promises in that. There's no happy ending stored away in a claim like that. But it does mean that, uh, as far as I can see, Creatures like us are going to be around for some while to come, living with the consequences of the ways that some of us have been living around here lately. And within that, within that story of the Natufians, I get a glimpse of how it might be for those who come after us. How they might look on their ways of living, some of which might be difficult for us to think about or imagine. And so from that depth of 12,000 years ago back to us here, now in these strange times, and I found myself wondering a lot over the years, getting into conversations with people about what kinds of tasks make sense if we take seriously this sense that we are living in a time of endings, that you know, climate change is not a problem that's going to be fixed or managed and made to go away, but something that is calling into question, and turning upside down all of our assumptions, all of the ways we've been living. And I have a a little list of kinds of tasks that might make sense. There's four of them so far. There are probably more that I haven't thought of. But here are the four that have stuck with me. So first, if you're living in a time of endings, there is work to do to salvage the good from what is ending. You know, one word that I often use to talk about what is ending is modernity. Modernity is ending. The whole project of the modern world is coming to an end. And my friend Vanessa Andriotti wrote an extraordinary book called 
hospicing modernity. Not trying to overthrow it, not trying to burn it down, not trying to save it, but trying to give it a good ending. And part of giving it a good ending is recognizing that even with all of the damage that has been done, even with all of the consequences that were hidden from view, there were nonetheless things that were achieved within this time in our history that we will want to try and salvage and take with us. So that's the first kind of task to salvage the good things that we can take with us from what has been built and learned and achieved in recent centuries. The second kind of task is to mourn. To mourn the good things that we don't get to take with us. There will be achievements we're not able to save, things that we would want to carry into the worlds to come that we don't get to. So there is a work of mourning And part of that is to tell the stories because we can carry the stories with us and those stories might turn out to be seeds from which new things grow in worlds we cannot yet imagine. The third kind of task involves attention, paying attention, noticing, exercising discernment because it's about noticing the things that were never as good as we told each other they were in the ways we've been living around here lately. And the chance that we're being given to walk away from things that were taken for granted. You know, in a time of endings, it becomes possible, becomes necessary, to distinguish between some of the deep social goods and the particular institutional forms with which those social goods have been associated lately. Maybe this is something we can talk about more in the workshop at 10.30 that I'll be doing. You want to join me for that? So, notice the things that were never as good as we told each other they were and the chance we're being given to walk away from them. And then the fourth kind of task, and I have a hunch that there are people in this room who are already very much on this kind of path, is to look for the dropped threads from earlier in the story and the chance we're being given to weave them back in. If you try and talk about these things, sometimes people go, well, you know, we can't go back to the way we used to live. Um... There's never going back in any simple sense, but what there is, is there are loose ends, dropped threads, things that we've been told are extinct, that actually are marginalized and surviving below the radar, undercover, in pockets. There are things we've been told are old-fashioned or unnecessary, that we've outgrown them, that might turn out to make all the difference in the times to come. And so that's the fourth kind of work that I can see is the work of looking for and picking up the lost threads. And part of the point of a little map like this is it allows us to recognize that we can be engaged in very different tasks that might not seem like they're based on the same understanding of the times we're in and what's called for, but that actually rather than needing to have that as some kind of debate and come to a single consensus about what the plan should be, what we ought to be doing. 
what might be needed in times like this are people of goodwill working on all of these different kinds of tasks. But if you want a question as we move shortly into the exercise of finding, finding a vision, finding something that you are committed to in these times, then maybe it's worth asking what's worth living for in a dark time. What is it that makes the difference between keeping going and giving up? And I don't think the answer can ever be personal survival. Personal survival is not enough to live for. That's not an ethical judgment about the self-interestedness of it. It's a pragmatic judgment. Because the one thing we all know is that Sooner or later, we're going to die. In this form, we won't be around any longer. And so, if your goal goal is personal survival, the part of you that knows that you're going to die is sitting there looking at you going, all right, let's see how that plays out. (laughs) So what is worth living for? One answer that I think can be extended to cover a lot of different things is to say, take responsibility for something that has a chance of being around when you are gone. And when, where your gifts and inclinations mean that you have a possibility of contributing to whether or not it's around when you're gone. And if you sit with that, you can find that it extends in all kinds of directions. It could be a patch of land. It could be a set of practices or skills. It could be all of the work that goes into raising children. There are many, many answers that can fit within that answer. But if you're looking for something to steer by, a way to find your bearings, then rather than having to sort of answer the question at the big level of, you know, How are we going to save the world? How are we going to fix everything? Which is so often where conversations that start with trouble like climate change lead us. I think it might often be more helpful to ask, what can I take responsibility for, together with those around me, that has a chance of being around when we're gone? So you remember that 1,200-year-long winter at the end of the last ice age. Europe had been plunged back into ice and tundra, and the Tufians had had to leave their villages. We call that the Younger Dryas. That's the name that is given to that episode within the history of our planet and its climate. And at the end of the Younger Dryas, the climate change was even more dramatic. In Europe, the temperatures rose by between 5 and 7 degrees Celsius in perhaps as short a time as 10 years, certainly within 30 years. So in other words, there were people who were born into one world, into one kind of landscape, and were elders in a completely different climate, completely different landscape. And 
For a long time, the scientific story about what happened at the end of the Ice Age involved things like the oak trees having survived in southern Greece and Turkey, and then marching out over centuries and centuries across the landscape to sort of reconquer the landscape of Europe for their species. And that was the that was the central understanding of what happened in the wake of this kind of climate change. But there are people called palynologists who study ancient seeds and pollen and they were finding things like acorns in times and places where they just shouldn't be in the record because oak trees can only move so fast. And so in recent decades, there's a new understanding coming from the science of how Europe was reseeded when the ice went away. And it centers on something called the cryptic northern refugia. I love that phrase, cryptic northern refugia. So they're refugia because they're refuges, pockets, within which a species was able to survive when the landscape around it was inhospitable. They're cryptic because they're so small that they're almost impossible to find in the record. We're talking about tiny little microclimates. They're northern because they're long to the north of where we had previously thought these species had survived. And they tend to be in steep-sided little valleys between high and low ground, where you had a microclimate that made it possible for trees and plants, animals, maybe even groups of humans to survive, cut off from others of their species through that 1,200-year span the younger dryas. So at the end of the Ice Age, what we now think happened is that from these seemingly insignificant pockets, the landscape was reseeded. Strawberries and apple trees spread. Hazelnuts with the help of human fingers, you know. It's what these things are good for. I have a friend, Thomas Keyes, who's a wonderful Scottish artist who does a lot of foraging and makes a lot of uh, extraordinary paintings with found materials. He wrote a thing for us in one of the early Dark Mountain books where he was talking about a pheasant stew that he'd made with a roadkill pheasant and with things that he had foraged from the woods around where he was living. And he said, there's a moment in the year. He said, most of the time I feel more clumsy than the other creatures around me in the landscape. But there is a moment when the hazelnuts are ripe, but they've not yet fallen from the tree. And I realize this is what fingers are for. So with the help of human fingers, the landscape was reseeded from tiny pockets. Maybe there's a clue in that, because maybe modernity has been a bit like an ice age an ice age of human relations in which more and more of our lives has been dominated by the logic of the market. I'm doing this because somebody's paying me to do it. Or the logic of the state. I'm doing this because somebody told me to do it. And the possibility that humans can come together for other reasons to do things has been so marginalized that it's only survived in little pockets like those cryptic northern refugia. 
Some of those pockets might be religious communities, some of them might be squats, some of them might be political movements, some of them might be eco-villages. They don't necessarily have that much in common, except that for one reason or another, they have kept going or rediscovered the possibility that humans can come together and do things and find meaning in doing things for reasons other than the reasons that make sense to the logic of the market or the state. If things are going to turn out less badly, then most people in our societies privately, even if they don't admit it or admit it to themselves, tend to believe. If things are going to turn out less badly in the times to come, I think it is going to have to do with that hidden capacity exiled capacities, Vanessa Andreotti calls them, including the capacity to come together and do things for reasons other than because we've been paid to or told to. So maybe the villages, the communities, the networks that are represented here today can be a bit like those cryptic northern refugia reseeding the social landscape when sudden, abrupt, and almost certainly painful change comes upon us as it will, probably very soon, in these societies. It's not a promise of a happy ending, but there is work to be done. There are visions worth finding and holding. There are things worth committing to. And all of that can be done in relation to an awareness of just how deep a mess the world is in, how deep this, this trouble is. Thank you for listening. The European Eco-Village Gathering is an annual celebration of eco-villages and community in all its forms. Every year, hundreds of people from all walks of life gather in a different European community to discover eco-villages or showcase life in their own communities. This year's gathering was held in Anandagauri, Denmark, and was generously supported by the Gaia Trust and Hoopner Kennedy Foundation. In 2023, we'll be meeting in Nature Community, Germany. Stay tuned for announcements on Genurip social media or on ecovillagegathering.org. We hope to see you there.